So we're in week three of the Bible for Grown-Ups uh, series. If you've missed any of the messages uh, in this series, really encourage you to go to fbcnext.com uh, and click on latest messages. You can watch back or listen uh, to any of those messages. And there's also some discussion questions there that you can click and download. Uh, if you're in a connect group, you can use those um, in the week just to um, delve in a little bit further to go a little bit deeper with the stuff that we're talking about. But you can use them just for yourself as well, you know, as part of your daily devotional habits or however you want to use those things. There's stuff there um, to help you you engage with it. And the thing that we've been talking about um, throughout this series is the way we got our Bibles isn't the way we got the Bible. You might have been given a Bible to you as a child or as an adult. This is uh, my Bible that was presented to me when I was ordained. So here at FBC about 11 years ago or so. Uh, And so that's the story of my Bible. And many of us have the stories behind our Bibles. We've got an emotional connection maybe uh, with them if we've got a physical Bible. Um, But the way we got our Bibles isn't the way we got the Bible. What we want to look at throughout this series is this story that goes behind the story of the Bible. How did it come into being? Why is it there? What are the parts uh, that make um, into that? And it's really important that we understand that because we do know that the Bible is full of stories, but how well do we know the stories um, that, of the Bible? We know the stories in the Bible. Do we know the story of the Bible? There's some famous stories in there like David and Goliath. There's some gruesome stories like Jael driving a tent peg through some bloke's head. There's a whole bunch of stories, but how well do we know the story of the Bible? And this is important because if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to discount the stories in the Bible. When we think the Bible is one um, complete unit, we talked about this last week, when we think it's just a book and actually all of it's the same, uh, we miss the point of the grand story um, of the Bible. And then it's easy just to discount the whole of it. Well, I struggle with this bit. And because I struggle with this bit, um, none of it can be true. Or if I don't think that's true, actually all of it um, isn't true. And, and that's where we come unstuck. And there's a part of the Bible that it's not uncommon for people to struggle with, that it can be a stumbling block. For, for some people. And that's the part that we call um, the Old Testament. Sometimes people even say, well, why do we even need the Old, Old Testament? Why can't we just skip on to the New Testament? Why is it there anyway? And that's what we're going to look at um, in our time together this morning. And the reason, this is so important we understand this, the reason we have the Old Testament is the same reason that we have the New Testament or any letter or, or any part of the Bible. The reason we have it is for one word. Jesus. Jesus is the reason that we have the Old Testament. Jesus is the reason that we have the New Testament. And this is crucial to understand. You know, I'm not saying that Jesus um, wrote the Old Testament. What I'm saying is if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't have it, and we wouldn't have anything that's contained in what we call the Bibles. The thing that we've been trying to say is that the beginning of the Bible isn't found inside the front cover of the Bible. The beginning of the Bible is found within an empty tomb. That at a point in time and a point in history, Jesus was crucified, he was dead, he was placed in the tomb, and he came back to life again. That he was resurrected. This thing that happened, this event that happened in history sparked the beginning of the story of the Bible. And if it wasn't for that event, if it wasn't for that time, if it wasn't for this thing happening, we wouldn't have the Bible at all. We wouldn't know anything about um, this guy called Jesus. If Jesus was crucified and stayed dead in the tomb, if it wasn't for the resurrection, 
resurrection, we would not even know that a person called Jesus existed. We wouldn't know anything about these, these ancient texts, which we call the Old Testament. We wouldn't know that they were written. You know, they predated Jesus, but we wouldn't know that they even existed. Because what happened after Jesus came, and after Jesus was crucified, and after Jesus came back to life, this, this new thing happened, this new movement, which was called the way, but today we call it Christianity um, or the church. This thing exploded onto the pages of history, and it came out of Judaism. You know, Jesus was a Jew, and all the, the first followers of Jesus were Jewish, and they saw that Jesus was the fulfillment, uh, the completion to their law, to their customs, to their way of life, to their tradition, to their religion. And they see, so Jesus completes that. And so they switched from Judaism to Christianity to put in their hope and trust in Jesus. But it wasn't just Jewish people who got on board with this new movement, who followed Jesus. Non-Jewish people did as well. And the word described in the Bible to, to describe non-Jewish people are, is, is Gentiles. You know, if you are a Gentile, that means you're not Jewish. You're either Jewish or you're a Gentile. Most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. We're included in that. And what happened with these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people who didn't grow up with the culture, who didn't grow up with the tradition, who didn't grow up with the religion of Judaism, found Jesus. And they were fascinated uh, with Jesus. And so what happened is, you know, people started to record the life um, of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down those Gospels. We find them at the beginning of the New Testament. And pretty soon they were thought of as trusted, as authoritative, um, as sacred. And the early church had some of those writings, uh, and that was there to help them. And then other people, people like Peter, like James, like Paul, like John, um, planted churches around like the Mediterranean Rim at that time and wrote letters to encourage them, to challenge them, to instruct them, to correct them. And those letters are, are formed what we know as the New Testament. But at this point, the Bible didn't exist. The New Testament didn't exist. There was just some collection of ancient writings. And these Gentile Christians received some of them, and they became fascinated with, with Jesus. And when these Gentiles became fascinated with a specific Jew, with Jesus, they became fascinated with the sacred text of that Jewish person, of Jesus. Because they wanted to find more understanding of, well, who is Jesus? And they've got these writings that were important to them, and they knew that actually there were some other ancient writings, ancient documents that were sacred to the Jewish people. So they went looking for those and, and took hold of them. And, and you know, that's the thing that we call um, the Old Testament. And the, the reason they were interested in them was because they were fascinated with Jesus. And the Old Testament provided a way for them to actually engage with Jesus on another level. So they read, you know, it was called the Law and the Prophets back then. You know, we know of it as the Old Testament. But at this time, it didn't exist. The Old Testament didn't exist. It was this collection of writings that they referred to as the Law and the Prophets. So these Gentile Christians grabbed hold of those documents and read them, trying to find Jesus in the pages of those ancient documents. And that's a really important thing to understand because they didn't read them looking for the culture to understand the instructions contained. They read them through the lens of who Jesus is, through what Jesus has said, and through what Jesus has done. And they didn't even, you know, these Gentile Christians didn't follow the Jewish interpretations on their own scriptures. You know, there was other writings around at the time that explained this thing called the law, which we'll talk about in a moment, and unpacked that and, and explained all this stuff. The Gentile Christians did
didn't follow them. They didn't listen to those Jewish interpretations. And the major reason why is because some of these, these Jewish people missed their Messiah within their own scriptures. They missed who Jesus is, even though Jesus is pointed to from these ancient sacred texts. So they engaged with the law and the prophets, and they did that through the lens of Jesus, trying to find Jesus. The important thing is they didn't read the Old Testament for its culture. They read it for its context to set the scene, to gain greater understanding, greater clarity on who Jesus is. Their interest wasn't historical. It was Christological, that they opened the pages of these ancient documents and they went looking for Jesus. And they found him on page after page after page after page. That these ancient texts, these ancient sacred documents gave them a greater understanding, a greater realization of who Jesus is. They created clarity and context for Jesus. And it's so important that we understand this because if we, if, we don't, if we don't read the Old Testament in the right way, we will struggle with it. We will go to it looking for it to provide us with something that it was never intended to provide. You know, we will go expecting a whole bunch of stuff from it that it was never supposed to be there for. You see, the Old Testament is this gritty, epic saga of the history of the Hebrew people and God. You know, it chronicles God's redemptive, sequential activity in history. It tells the story of how God got involved in his creation, how God got involved in, in the world, and how God worked through people to set the seed for Jesus to walk onto the pages of history. And that's why it's there, to give us this, this overview of this massive story of God and his people, to help us have greater understanding of who Jesus is, but more importantly, why do we need Jesus? So this understanding you know, how the Old Testament fits and that, that grand storyline is really really, really important. We've got an event coming up on the 23rd of November, and some people called Walk Through the Bible are coming to um, lead us through a journey of the Old Testament. So walking through the Old Testament is a day um, event on a Saturday. It's an interactive uh, thing, and at, at the end of it, um, if you come along to that, you will understand that these are how the events of the Old Testament fit in. These are the major characters, and this is you know, the chronological, the sequential story of God and his people. I really, really, really do encourage you to consider coming onto that. If you, if you struggle to piece the Old Testament together or to understand that grand story of the Old Testament, this is your next step. Come along, uh, go to Next Steps area and chat with somebody there, or go to fbcnext.com and you can find out more uh, about it. Um, but what I want us to do today is just to take a high-level view in a similar way that these guys are going to do, but in, not in as much detail because we haven't got time, of well, what is the story of the Old Testament and how does it relate to us today? And right at the beginning of the Old Testament, we see God in creator mode, that God is creating the universe and God is creating uh, the world. We looked at this last week, and pretty soon God switches from creator to founder. So he's created the world, he's created the universe, he's created life, and now he's find, founding a nation through whom he can bless the entire world. And he does that through this guy called Abraham, or Abraham as he was known, and then God changes his name later on, and his wife, Sarah. You know, Abraham is an old man. He's childless. His wife is barren. And God thinks, you are the perfect people through whom I'm going to start a nation to bless the entire world through. An elderly couple who can't have kids and are past the age of bearing kids. An amazing thing. And then Abraham, we skip on into Moses. Uh, and by the time Moses comes on the scene, um, Israel are captives in, um, in Egypt. They're called the Hebrew people. They're slaves um, to the Egyptian slaves to, to Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh, and God speaks through Moses to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel. And he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And this whole conversation, this whole sort of battle pursues. And God speaks to Pharaoh using the only words, the only language that Pharaoh would understand, violence and power. And as we read it, there's some you know, challenging, some difficult parts uh, uh, in there. And it leads to um, Israel being free, and they come out of captivity in Egypt. They wander into the wilderness, uh, and they're, they're able to establish themselves as this nation that God had created them um, to be. And that moves us into this next phase in the Old Testament, which is called the Sinai Covenant. Moses is at the foot of Mount Sinai. The whole people of Israel are there. And Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to spend time with God. And whilst he's there, God gives the law uh, to Moses. And you might have heard of the Ten Commandments. That's part of it. But there's a whole bunch of laws. There's a whole bunch of rules and regulations contained within this Sinai Covenant, within this, within this law. And um, you know, the whole point here is God is establishing this nation. And the purpose of this nation is through, to be a vehicle through whom he can bless the entire world. So he needs to set some ground rules. He needs to set some parameters for how are these people going to live their lives? How are they going to be set apart? How are they going to be different from all the other nations and all the other people of the world? And also, how are they going to exist in the presence of the pure, and perfect, awesome God? So God gives them a whole bunch of rules, a whole bunch of regulations to show that this is how you are to live. This is how you are to be different from everybody else. This is how you are to stay pure. This is how you are to stay healthy. This is how you are to stay holy. And it's at this point in the Bible that, you know, if you're reading the Bible from cover to cover, that often you can come unstuck. Because Genesis is great, and there's some great narrative and great stories contained within it. Exodus, similar, you know, there's some wonderful stuff in there. As we get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, you know, it gets a bit hard going. And Leviticus is where, you know, lots of this law is recorded for us. And as we read it, it can seem strange. It can seem weird. It can seem, you know, well, why on earth would God say those things? And it just doesn't seem to make sense in our context or our culture. And there's people like um, Richard Dawkins who would jump on this and and will take verses out of context from Leviticus to to paint a picture of who God is like or who the Jewish people um, are like. And obviously taking it out of context takes God out of context and paints an image of God that he isn't there. So in um, The God Delusion, a famous book that Richard Dawkins writes, um, he says this about Judaism. So originally a tribal cult of a single, fiercely unpleasant God who's morbidly obsessed with sex restrictions with the smell of charred flesh. And he goes on and he just lays in um, to the Jewish culture, but, but he lays into God, the character of God, by fixating on some specific laws and specific rules and specific regulations that are contained within this letter. And one part um, of this, this um, sorry, the, the, the book of Leviticus that people often struggle with or misunderstand who God is, is in Leviticus, Leviticus 18. Because um, this lists a whole bunch of sexual prohibitions. 19 of them are listed uh, in Leviticus. And people often think, well, you know, what has God got against sex? You know, why does God always get in the way of that? Why, why does God, you know, want to spoil our fun? Why does God seem to be so obsessed with sexual restrictions about, you know, stopping people doing what it is that they want to do? Who, is God, who does God think he is to tell us what we can and can't do in the bedroom? Well, let's have a look um, at the opening one of these. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. 
all right, that does sort of make sense, does it? You know, okay, I'm on, yeah, I'm on board with that one, God, okay. You know, this, uh, and this is exactly the thing that we think, okay, I'll see this and I'll take that verse. And, and, and you know, God's, God's obsessed with stopping us having fun. But actually, when we read through these things, we begin to see that there is meaning and there's culture um, in there. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why would God even say that? You know, what, that goes without saying, doesn't it? This is crazy that you'd have to put that down as a law. Who's going to do that? Well, let's go back a chapter. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Uh, You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You know, God spoke to the Israelites through Moses, and he gave them this bunch of laws and regulations because this is exactly what everybody else was doing. This is exactly what the Egyptians were doing. This is exactly what the people of Canaan, that's the land into which um, Israel will be established, the physical place where they are going. And God says, I don't want you to be like everybody else. I don't want you just to do what everybody else does. I want you to be different. I want you to be separate. And you know, the thing is, when we look at the law, and actually when we look at Leviticus 19, these, uh, sorry, 18, these 19 sexual prohibitions, we see that 17 out of those 19 prohibitions listed there in the modern world today are either illegal or strongly frowned upon. And the two that aren't are not the ones necessarily that you would expect them to be. I mean, just go and have a read for yourself. Maybe not over dinner, because that might put you off, all, all those sort of things. And the thing is, you know, when we look at this, and when we look at the law and the context, in our context, it can seem strange, it can seem uh, barbaric. But actually, what this was doing was actually light years ahead of the time. It was light years ahead of the culture and context at the time. God is saying, look, I'm giving you a bunch of rules and regulations, And these rules are here to keep you healthy. These rules are here to protect your relationships. These rules are here to keep you holy, to keep you different, to set you apart so you're not just like everybody else. Because I want to use you and I want to work through you to be a blessing to the entire world. The the law was light years ahead of anything else of its time. You know, if we fast forward 1,500 years to the time of Jesus, you know, the Israelites are not sleeping with their family, but Egyptian royalty at this time are still marrying their siblings. You know, this law is light years ahead of anything else, any other civil or religious code given at the time. And the problem is we can often fixate on one or two verses or one or two rules or regulations that seem strange or even barbaric in our culture. And when we do that, we miss the point of what it was given for. We don't understand the culture or the context into which it was written. You know, when we fixate on one of these two things and take them out of context like Dawkins does, we miss the staggering force of good that this writings or this law was to the people of its time. You know, the protection it afforded to the most vulnerable people, you know, to, to, to women, to slaves, to foreigners, to, to children, was nothing short of revolutionary. Why? Well, because the Hebrew people, the Israel people, believed that all people, men and women, were created in the image of God and had inherent dignity, had inherent value, had inherent 
purpose that God had plans for them. And so everybody should be treated equally. Everybody should be valuable. That's what we see through the law. You know, um, uh, the, the law, when we understand it, is a moral and civil code that when understood in its ancient context is brilliant. It's absolutely amazing. It is light years ahead of anything else. So God gives them the, this law and these rules to establish them um, as a nation. And then we move into the next phase um, of the Old Testament, and that's the time of the kings. You see, Israel had been created as their land. They've, they've gone into Canaan. They've established themselves, and they're this great nation. And they're looking around at everybody else, doing the very thing that God had told them not to do. Don't copy everybody else. Don't be like everybody else. Be different. But they see that everybody else has kings, and they want to be like the cool kids. They want to have a king too. They seem to have forgotten that God is their king. Uh, but they, they say, we want a king. And, and God tells them, he warns them, you know, a king is not going to be good for you. A king is going to be expensive. A king is going to take you off into battle. A king, a king is going to tax you. A king is going to take your children and is going to take your wives. You know, kings are not good. But they don't listen. They want to be like everybody else. And so they get themselves a bunch of kings. And the vast majority of Israel's kings were disasters. You know, they were horrific for the nation. They, they led this people of God away from God. This nation that was supposed to be separate, that's supposed to be distinct, that was supposed to be a vehicle through whom the whole world will be blessed. These kings took them off in another direction. And with their third king, they got something that all the other nations had as well. They got themselves a, a temple. You see, Israel are spending more time looking around at everyone else than they are looking up to who God is and who he has created and established them to be. And they see that everyone else has kings, everyone else has temples, we want a temple too. So they build themselves a temple for their God, for Yahweh. But the, the Jewish temple has one difference. It was so similar to all the other ancient um, temples apart from one um, distinction. In all the pagan temples, there was this room called the God Vault. And within the God Vault, there would be this image, this physical you know, icon or, or idol that represented the God that they worshipped or the God that was contained uh, within um, that uh, temple. And actually, it was more than it was th that it represented that itself. That was the God. Uh, and you know, they had them on all these pagan temples. The Jewish temple, um, Yahweh's temple, didn't have this God Vault. Yeah, it had had a room, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was said to dwell. But if you walked in it, you wouldn't find a statue um, of Yahweh. And the reason that was there was because right at the beginning, you know, in these laws that we talked about, God says, you shall not have an image of me. That God knew that this was going to happen. God knew what they were going to be like, and he wanted them to be different. He didn't want them to be able to say, we can contain you, we can define you, we can control you. God is bigger than that. God is better uh, than that. So we've got this, this temple phase. And you know the kings would often disobey God. They would often misbehave. And when they would do that, God would send them a messenger to challenge them, to correct them, to rebuke them, sometimes to encourage them and try and point them back in their right direction. And that leads us into this, this next phase of the Old Testament narrative, uh, which is the prophets. And, and that's actually structured in your Old Testament, um, in the part of the Bible, Isaiah, right the way through to Malachi, which is at the end of the Old Testament. All the prophets have been lumped together there. They're not there because of the chronological order that they were written in. You know, you've got the major prophets and then the minor prophets. I always feel sorry for the minor prophets, but there you go. Who are you? I'm just a minor prophet. Oh, well, I'm a major prophet, you know, go make my tea. Uh, so that, they're structured in there, and we read about these sort of 
um, examples. And every single prophet had a specific culture and a specific context into which they spoke. So every single you know, prophetic announcement, every single prophetic message was addressing a specific culture or a specific context, something that was going on in their world at their time. But occasionally, these prophets would foretell of a time or an event when God would do something that would transcend their time and their culture and their context, a time when God would do something not just for that place, but God would do something for the whole world. And a classic example of this, an amazing example of this, is found within Isaiah. Isaiah, um, you know, was a prophet. He lived about 600 years before Jesus was born, and he wrote and, and spoke into specific contexts and specific things that were going on in the nation of Israel at the time. But Isaiah also foretells of this strange character called, which is titled the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And he talks about this, this servant through whom his suffering God will use to bless not just the nation of Israel, but the entire world. Let's take a look at some of the stuff and just see if you have an understanding of who it is that Isaiah is talking about. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That just means like wrongdoing. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of us can see straight away who Isaiah is talking about. But in his original context, the original hearers or readers of Isaiah would have like not, they perhaps have said, well, who are you talking about? Who is this character who's going to be pierced, you know, stabbed um, for the things that we've done wrong? Who's going to be crushed for our wrongdoing? How is my punishment that, you know, on him? And how is that going to bring me peace? How, is, how am I going to be healed from his wounds? Let's continue. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So as in all of us, all of our wrongdoing is placed onto him. Who is this character? He was cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? Well, okay, if you're cut off, dead. Okay, he was killed. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression, for the wrongdoing of my people. He was punished. He was killed for the things that I have done wrong. He was aside a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. After he has suffered, so hang on, after all of this has happened, after he's been pierced for my transgressions, after he's been cut off from the land of the living, up, so after he's been killed, he will see the light of life and will be satisfied. So after he's killed, he's going to come back to life again. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Now, this is absolutely amazing. 600 years before Jesus uh, lived, Isaiah foretells about Jesus. Now, we read this, and we see Jesus all through this. At that time, they wouldn't have known that. Of course they wouldn't, because you know, they didn't have the benefit of hindsight. This is the whole point, you know, that when these Gentile Christians took these prophetic words and, and read them, and when they took the Old Testament and read through them, they saw Jesus in page after page after page, because God is foretelling about Jesus, that through the Old Testament, we, we have this scene being set for Jesus to walk in, for Jesus to be able to do what he is going to do. You know, Isaiah is pointing to a person and event that will change the world, that will bless the world, a person and event that won't just impact the people of that time and that context, but a person and an event that will impact and bless 
all people, in all nations, across all of time. You know, the, the point is, the, the story of the Old Testament shows us how God works through the kingdoms of this world in order to usher in a kingdom not of this world. That's exactly what's happening. That it's setting the scene, it, it's creating the context, it's showing that, that God walks into the mess, that God rolls up his sleeves, that God goes to work, he gets stuck in to restore the very thing that we broke. And there's parts of it that are difficult, and there's parts of it that we struggle with, but to sand off those rough edges, to to cut out the bits that that are difficult, is to miss the point of what the Old Testament is there. The Old Testament is not a spiritual guidebook. It is not a manual for us to copy. It's an amazing account of the people of God who struggled to survive in a time where food was scarce, where violent enemies were real, where death was just a minor infection away. It's a dramatic account that that sets the scene for God's redemptive work in history to begin. A dramatic account of how God's people, through all circumstances and against the odds, clung to their God and how their God clung to his people. It's this amazing thing that sets the scene, that creates the context or provides the context for Jesus to walk in and do something absolutely amazing. And Jesus walks into the pages of history and he lives and he does amazing stuff and he's crucified and he's placed within a tomb. But the tomb cannot contain him. Death can't hold him. He breaks forth into glorious resurrection, eternal, everlasting life. And the church explodes onto history. Nothing is the same again. And then later on, Paul, who planted lots of the churches and wrote lots of the letters in the New Testament, writes this to the church in Galatia. He says, but when the set time had fully come, the point being that all of this stuff that we've talked about, all of this history, all of this chronology is there for a reason, to set the scene, to provide the groundwork, to provide the framework for God to do what only God can do. And when the set time had fully come, when it was right, at just the right time, God sent his son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. You know that Jesus lived according to all those rules and regulations that we've already talked about. And he came to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Please don't let that word sonship um, offend you. The reason that's there is because um, sonship carried more weight and authority than daughtership in this culture and context. For us, it means the same thing. You know, sonship means that we are full heirs to the kingdom of God, that we are sons and daughters of God. And this new kingdom that he's bringing in through Jesus, that he's brought in, he's worked within the constraints of the created world. That we, if we believe in him and put our hope and trust in him, we are sons and daughters of God. We are heirs to the kingdom of God. See, the point is, the Old Testament is the story of the old covenant. It's just the same word, just, just you know, different language. Between God and, and Israel, that sets the scene and provides the groundwork for the new covenant, the new promise between God and the entire world. You know, the Old Testament provides us that basis for Jesus. So don't read it looking for instructions. Read it looking for Jesus. Read it to gain greater clarity on who he is and why he came. Read it to discover the wonder and majesty of the one true God who moved heaven and earth to set you, to set us free 
from our rebellion against him, to redeem us, to restore us, to give us life, to give us hope, to give us peace. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this amazing account of history, of how you've been at work within the world. Thank you, Lord, that through this we see your love for us, even though we rebel against you, even though we go against you, that as we engage with with these writings, that we see you at work and we see Jesus at work, that we see the lengths you have gone to, to take hold of us, to love us, that reckless love, that didn't care about boundaries, that didn't care about the cost, but was only interested in us. Lord, help us to read this, to see Jesus afresh and to see your love for us. Amen.